Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and Aaron Miller is my co-host. We have three topics for you today. The first is the new Apple TV, uh, which I've been using since last Friday. And we'll be talking not just about my initial experiences with it, but also uh, more philosophically about the product and kind of how it evolves, where it goes from here. And in particular, talking about some of the ways in which it's the same and some of the ways in which it's different compared to the Apple Watch, Apple's other big recent new hardware product. Uh, after that, we'll move on to our question of the week, and that this week is about payments and specifically about how uh, credit card payments and card payments in general are evolving with the entrance of new players like Square into the payment processing space and also uh, mobile payments with things like Apple Pay, um, Android Pay, and so on. And then our third topic will be Twitter's introduction this week of likes, uh, replacing favorites, which has been there for a long time, uh, and everything associated with that. We're going to use that as a hook to talk about some of Twitter's challenges more broadly. And then we'll wrap up, as usual, with our weekly pick at the end of the hour. So starting with the Apple TV, as I mentioned, I got um, an Apple TV on Friday. I, I ordered it when they went uh, on sale with pre-orders uh, earlier in the week and it arrived uh, first thing on Friday morning. So I spent several hours on Friday sort of playing around with it, trying various things, downloading lots of apps and, and digging into apps and that kind of thing. And, um, you know, you've, you've hopefully read reviews at this point. Um, and my uh, general thoughts are very, you know, much along the same lines of, of most of the reviews I read, um, you know, just to run through some highlights quickly. It's, it's much faster than any of the previous boxes have been you know and and so i enjoy the fact that you know the um the chips and so on used for it were boosted significantly mostly for the purpose of making you know gaming a better experience um but the nice side effect of that is the whole thing's much faster from an interface perspective as well and it looks really nice it looks more modern now um with the the sort of lighter color scheme as opposed to the old dark color scheme feels like it's evolved feels more polished feels a bit smarter generally um the remote's great very usable um compared to the old remote i find it a lot better um i've got some issues with some of the button placement and things like that i keep if i'm not looking down at the remote it's very easy to hit the wrong button between the menu button and the siri button i frequently hit the wrong one when i was using it which is interesting um you know the, the apps are good and we'll talk some more about the apps i think um you know gaming is an interesting experience on it mostly the same sort of casual games that are on uh, iphone and ipad already are there um, and the experience is very similar using either the remote or uh, a controller and i bought a third-party controller just to try that out and that worked fine too um, the single most frustrating thing about the new apple tv is the fact that the remote app doesn't work with it so you can no longer use your iphone to control it which means for things like entering email addresses usernames passwords and so on for authentication for apps um, it's utterly painful even bluetooth keyboards don't work anymore so all that stuff that used to work with old apple tvs doesn't work anymore the only way to do text entry now on the new apple tv is the hunt and peck kind of um, sliding back and forth across a, a linear keyboard on the screen um, and that's really really painful for uh, username and password entry especially um, the good news is that most of the um, tv apps like you know your espns and other cable networks and so on which require authentication as a subscriber to say comcast uh, before you can watch stuff they don't require you to type anything in on the screen they basically send you to a web page on your phone or pc or wherever where you then enter a code and so all the entry data entry and text entry is done on a, a different device that has hopefully a better keyboard um, and what I really want Apple to do and what I think other third-party app makers like Hulu and Netflix who aren't part of that whole TV everywhere authentication thing and what I want them to do is adopt a similar model and it's Adobe's technology that's behind the TV everywhere stuff from all the TV providers so you know there should be a version of that available to these other companies but you know Apple needs to fix that really badly it's a really bizarre omission you know to lose the remote functionality um, with a new Apple TV just as a huge backward step and, and it really takes the shine off what's otherwise I think a really nice product but i'll stop ranting and raving at this point um aaron i know you had some thoughts when we were talking beforehand in terms of kind of uh you know some of the low-hanging fruit in terms of what apple can fix here yeah i mean I, it, based on all the reviews i've read and i haven't had a chance to try it out yet the text input is a huge deal especially which is especially strange also considering siri yes i, I mean i don't know if there's maybe a security issue with somebody entering their password through siri like, why can't you just type out your, or like speak out your account name right. and password, Absolutely. for example? Mm -hmm. it, it just, I don't know, it feels weird and underbaked 
which is strange. The tr- I mean, the truth is, whenever Apple launches a new product, there are always aspects that are a little bit underbaked, just because mm-hmm. Apple spends a lot of time refining certain things, which means that on new products, there are other things they sort of put on the back burner right? and eventually get around to. Uh, it does look like they're going to be aggressive in updating the OS, uh, the mm-hmm. tvOS, which is encouraging. Um, but yeah, I agree. It, the The text entry thing just seems weird, and it, especially because they already have a remote app that that right. the majority of these early Apple TV customers are very familiar with, mm-hmm. and have available and would and, and you know instinctively all tried to use, right. <laughs> unless they knew right. unless they yeah. knew outright that it wasn't going to work before they even tried it. But yeah. but I suspect there are a ton of Apple TV users that or purchasers in this early round who fired up the remote app on their phone and, and were surprised that it didn't work. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one thing, like, for the first version of a brand-new product to be missing some stuff, you know, and, you know, the original iPhone didn't have copy-paste, it didn't have right. multimedia messaging, you know, it was all kinds of stuff it was missing, but that was literally the first iPhone, but we almost, like, you know, iOS 7 got rid of copy-paste or something like that. So right, like, yeah, because you know, this it's, is it's not... there before, you know you can do this. That's <laughs> you right. Know, you've this been able to do it before, and functionality like that gets taken away, and especially, you know, support for Bluetooth keyboards. I mean, most people probably don't have one of those sitting around, but, you know, when I you know, when I realized that the iPhone remote wasn't going to work, I thought, oh, well, I've got some Bluetooth keyboards sitting around here that I use with iPads or whatever. That always used to work with the old Apple TV. Nope, that didn't work either, you know. Um, and, yeah, to your point, Siri, which is great, by the way. I mean, that was one of the headline features, and I think some of the best demos at the announcement of the new Apple TV were around Siri and all the clever stuff it can do. And it really is fun to, to speak these kind of natural language queries and then be able to drill down on them as well and filter stuff. Uh, with just your voice, you know, it's a great way to navigate. And the fact that it can tap into not just iTunes, but Netflix and Hulu and so on as well, it's really, really good. Um, but yeah, the fact that you can't dictate, you know, letter by letter, a username or a password or something like that. Or even, you know, use voice dictation within the App Store. I mean, that's the other thing. App Store is not part of what Siri does. Um, and so you can't look for apps using Siri. Literally, the only way to search for an app that doesn't come up automatically in one of the you know featured categories is to type out the name letter by letter um and uh you know unlike say the iphone where you could get a link to the you know an app store from a company's website or something the only way to get to an app in the app store is either to happen to find it in one of the featured categories or to type in the name um you know there will be you know proper genre category listings over time as well as there are enough apps to justify that but for now it's that's a bit of a painful experience yeah and it is it, it, well, and also, I mean, the whole text entry thing is like a major hang-up from everything I've read. And, and it, it's, it seems even made even worse by the fact that they changed the keyboard layout, right? And you, you'll have to confirm this, but instead of having a QWERTY-displayed keyboard, it's just one long row of the alphabet. Is that, yeah, is that true? Yeah, and I'm trying to think on the old one whether it was QWERTY or whether it was a sort of a box. It was a box um, before. It wasn't quite QWERTY, but it was a box. Right. But the point yeah. is, is that it was... It was not just you go all up and down, line. left and right. Yeah, yeah. So and I think that's you because could skip around. right. And I think that's because you know the the trackpad um, kind of lends itself best to kind of swiping back and forth. Um, so left right movements or up and down movements, but it's obviously not great for kind of diagonals. And so and you can swipe pretty quickly from one side of the keyboard to another. It takes a tiny bit of practice. But of course, it's going to be imprecise. You know, you might want P, and you swipe quite hard from A, and you end up on S, and then you still have to swipe back a little bit to get to P. You know, it's just not ideal. Um, you know, it's fine in a pinch, but for that to be the default method for entering usernames and passwords or searching for things that Siri doesn't cover, you know, that just felt wrong to me. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, so. I mean, I think that qualifies definitely as low-hanging fruit, and I suspect right. that's going to be solved pretty dang quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, unlike copy paste on the iPhone, for example, right, yeah. <laughs> took a few OS generations. Yeah, um, you know, I think uh, gaming is the other really interesting. This isn't low hanging fruit anymore. I'm mm. thinking more long term, but I think gaming yeah. is the interesting thing to watch develop. Um, the, uh, the Verge. Well, so it was a t- it was Thomas Ricker at The Verge had a, just a brief post about how he's now finding himself drawn back into console gaming by the Apple TV. Like, he had mm-hmm. a background where he, he used to play console games and then just kind of moved on from them. Mm. And the Apple TV has reopened the idea of playing games on his television 
and right. primarily because he finds himself engaged in the more casual games that exist. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I, I do think it's going to be, and we talked about this before, but I, I do think that's the place for the Apple TV. I think there will be companies that bring eventually hardcore games. I, I mean, like, you know, the big, the, the big expansive and even expensive games to, to mm-hmm. the Apple TV. But I think gaming is just where almost all the upside is here. I, I mean, right. TV, obviously, and, and consuming movie and, t- and, and TV shows is going to matter a lot. But but I think what's going to tip it over, That's but that's what all these other boxes are already doing. Mm-hmm. I think gaming is where Apple has a chance to really like push people over the edge to pay the extra 50 bucks. Right. And, uh, <clears throat> and I think uh, it's going to be really fascinating to watch how this evolves because Apple it seems to be so cautious about it right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, I think you know, it's interesting because I think they've been quite cautious in general about the Apple TV. Like, there hasn't been a big ad campaign or anything like that. You know, the pre-orders, I think there was a press release, but I'm not sure there is even that, actually. You know, I think uh, Phil Schiller and others kind of tweeted that it was available now to pre-order or whatever, but they really haven't made a big push around it. And I wonder if part of that is just... This has had a really short lead time. You know, it was announced in, in September. It was launched at the end of October. You know, it's the shortest time ever from releasing a completely new SDK to developers to opening the App Store associated with it for Apple. Um, so, you know, App Store has, I think it had 1,000 apps in it as of Monday. I haven't checked again since then to see a new number. Um, it's actually quite hard to know how many there are in there. Um, but, you know, there, there a lot of the obvious apps are there, but, you know, it's still a fairly small number altogether. And I, I wonder if Apple's just kind of playing it quite carefully and not promoting it very heavily, not making a big push around it just yet, kind of allowing people to play with it a little bit, you know, wait for the developers to bring their apps along and that kind of thing. Um, you know, it feels like it is quite careful in that sense. Um, you know, the apps that are there, I, I, one of the interesting observations I had was, you know, the apps that are there mostly fall into three categories to me. One is they're transplants from the old Apple TV. Right. So they're just apps that have carried over, and I want to talk about that a bit more. Two, they're transplants from other boxes, like the Roku. So somebody had a Roku app. They saw that Apple TV was going to have apps now. They find, found a way to build their app for, for Apple TV too. And the third one is iOS transplants. So the vast majority of apps, to my mind, from what I've seen, are transplants from one of those three other places. Either they came over from the old Apple TV, they came over from other streaming boxes, or they came over from iOS. And, and obviously most of the casual games that are there are in that category where they existed already as iPhone and or iPad games, and they've kind of come across. Um, with, the, with the ones that came over from the old Apple TV, the vast majority of them seem to have just kept the same old functionality and even layout in most cases. So, you know, the, the great thing about the new Apple TV when it comes to TV apps is you've got um, pretty much a blank slate in terms of how you want your app to look. And yet the vast majority of these apps feel like they haven't actually been updated. They're still using perhaps even the same underlying code to run on the new Apple TV. Is that the black background, which feels kind of funny given the white a user interface for the home screen. Um, You go into this black background, lots of sort of basic sort of rows and columns and things like that. Pretty simple, um, you know, layouts and so on. And and some of the most interesting video-based apps are the ones that are either brand new to the platform or where, you know, in the rare occasions that somebody has really really rethought their app. So ESPN's done something interesting where video, once you've authenticated, every time you go into the app, live video starts playing automatically at the top of the screen. And then shrinks down as you start navigating around, but it's still there. Um, and you know that's something you couldn't do in the old Apple TV. It was kind of binary: either you're navigating or you're watching. Uh, and the new Apple TV allows you to do both at the same time. And there's apps like QVC and the Home Shopping Network, which have taken a very similar approach, where you still get live video as the main item on the screen, but then around it you get the products that are being shown now, and you can scroll back and forth and see stuff that was shown earlier. You know, those guys are really thinking about how this should be different. And Disney. As another interesting example, their apps basically mirror their apps on iOS rather than taking the kind of old-style Apple TV interface. So there are some companies that have thought through it, and I feel like over the next few months, a lot more of these video apps will be migrated to some new user interface where it'll be a lot more interesting. It'll feel less jarring to go from the home screen into these very dark-looking apps uh, where they'll take advantage of the, the flexibility of the new user interface a lot more as well. Uh, and I'm looking forward to that because I feel like there's so much more that can be done um, you know, and people like Airbnb and Howes and others have done really interesting stuff uh, with the TV. And in some ways, it's reminiscent of 
what's happened with the watch where a lot of apps have just kind of carried straight over without really rethinking the experience for a different size screen and a different kind of experience and I feel like the best ones are the ones that have really rethought the experience for this device and I think Airbnb is a good example of that like you can't actually book an Airbnb through the TV app that's not the point the point is to explore to really enjoy exploring stuff seeing these high resolution pictures and then if you like something you can kind of favorite it and then the next time you use your app on your phone or go to their website then you can go ahead and book something and I feel like more apps need to do that kind of rethinking of what this app should be on this new television it's a different size it's a different distance away from you that you're going to interact with in a very different way and I feel like there's a lot more work to be done there just as there is actually in the Apple Watch app store that's where I think the the television and the movie side of it is much more interesting to me than just having access, like you know, through streaming. I think it's the supplemental stuff they can add to television. Like for example, this is a brand new wide open door for advertising, where television all of a sudden is going to have a new advertising medium that they haven't had mm-hmm. before, because the idea is that ads could be interactive and run concurrently with what they're showing. In fact, I hope what this does is it reduces the cost that you may pay. It's sort of like how Hulu has that in Hulu Plus when you're using it on your computer. And, you know, the regular Hulu runs these ads. and Well, I guess Hulu Plus runs ads too, what am I thinking? Um, but maybe sort of like what you see with, uh, with Spotify, for example, the free versus paid versions of Spotify. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, th- I think, for example, you know, you can run, like these uh, content companies can run ads in a bunch of really creative ways now where they haven't been able to before. Mm-hmm. Um, TiVo does this a little bit, for example. When you're watching a show on a TiVo, <clears throat> it, uh, if you're watching a show that it has negotiated with an advertiser about, it'll put a TiVo menu up to say, hey, here's another show. You know, if, So let's say you're watching Fox and it's running an ad for a different television show the TiVo will pop up in your menu saying, hey, is this a show you want to record? And it'll give you this interactive moment as you're just watching right. what's being fed, you know, through the screen. And uh, and, and I think there, there's a there's a bunch of creative approaches to advertising that are opened up by the Apple TV. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, this obviously also makes it a little bit scary because you can't always trust advertisers to, to show good judgment. But... There is something comforting about Apple being the gatekeeper for that, because uh, mm. they've sort of, you know, I mean, there are apps that are over the top with advertising too on the phone or on the iPad. Yeah. But, but Apple also limits pretty severely what advertisers can get away with. But that said, there's still a market there mm. on the phone and on the iPad, and I think there's going to be something like that for the Apple TV. And so I think that's another thing we're going to see develop is that. Advertising not embedded in games like you see in iOS, but advertising embedded in, in primarily TV shows is going has the potential to change dramatically in, a, in an exciting way and I think actually a pretty engaging way. Yeah, absolutely. No, I agree with that. It's funny. I've seen quite a few demos at trade shows and things for you know, what could be done with 4K TV in terms of interactivity because you've got that many more pixels to work with on the screen. Right. You know, some of these new Apple TV apps are doing the same thing with standard you know, 1080p definition um, television, and it works just fine. You, know, you can shrink down the video screen a little bit if you're actually doing something else at the same time on the screen. And I think you know, most content providers would much rather you do that secondary activity in the app where they can still see what you're doing, where they can make sure your attention isn't diverted, than doing it, say, on your phone or on a laptop or something while you're watching that content or nominally watching that content on the big screen because they understand your behavior a lot better and make sure that whatever advertising or other stuff that might be shown to you is very relevant to the context that you're in. Yeah, so, and, and you know, and, and I hope this does create more, um, well, I should say reduced cost opportunities for people because my worry with television is that there's never going to be enough coalescence around the streaming service that Apple wants to do with TV because mm-hmm. it appears that this has like hit pretty consistent roadblocks and as hard as ADQ is working it seems like they're not be- they haven't been able to pull it together yet mm-hmm. and so my worry is that every TV provider out there is every you know every 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 uh, broadcaster out there is essentially going to say ah we'll just do our own app and then they all charge you know four to twelve dollars a month to get full access to whatever shows are on that station right. and then the problem of course is that 
you know, by the end, you're, it's going to be higher than your cable bill to get all the same television mm-hmm. that you wanted access to before. Right, right. And then at that point, they're all say, we'll just go back to cable. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's going to be a big missed opportunity. And so I'm hopeful that, you know, and I can picture Disney um, figuring out ways to do this with ABC. I'm not so confident about ESPN because of how mm-hmm. heavily they're subsidized by cable. But I could picture with ABC, for example, them figuring out a creative way to do advertising. They're pretty forward thinking when it comes to getting their content onto different kinds of devices. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and I hope somebody anyway leads the way and says, hey, we figured out how to do really engaging, high-value advertising so that the cost to viewers kind of brings us back to the way it used to be, right? Where you'd watch right. a show and the commercials mm-hmm. are just part of the arrangement and none mm-hmm. of it is terribly in your face and everybody's getting value out of it. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I definitely like to see some more innovation around advertising. I'd also, frankly, though, like to see more models where you can opt out of advertising. And it's one of the things I like about Hulu recently is they've introduced a slightly higher priced offering where you get rid of all the ads for the vast majority of shows and I've found that's made my Hulu watching experience much more palatable now you know I don't tend to watch a lot of Hulu but if I'm traveling on business then it's you know a a much more enjoyable experience than trying to find the right channel on the TV and and hope that something good is on and so when I'm doing that now being able to do that without ads um, just as you always have been able to do on Netflix is is a much more pleasant experience so I hope that you know advertising on the Apple TV evolves in such a way that's less interruptive and more optional um, and more of a kind of value added rather than something that's really forced on you. Um, like the TiVo menu that you mentioned, you know, you can activate it if you want to, but you can also kind of ignore it and not feel too distracted from the content that you're watching. I, I think Hulu is an interesting example. And I must have been thinking about that recent, um, you know, that recent switch on being able to get right. opt out of advertising before. But anyway, I think Hulu is an interesting example of a company that is somewhat threatened by the existence of the Apple TV. I, and I say somewhat because everybody would have to have one for it to be a real threat. But the Apple TV can essentially be a complete substitute for Hulu. I, I mean, mm-hmm. every major broadcast network, for example, the, all the ones that have deals with Hulu, they could just produce their own app. Yeah, they could. And the challenge is just, you know, do you want to pay? This is my challenge, and partly it's it's being a transplant to the U.S. I still haven't kind of established sort of close identifications with specific networks. You know, I have no idea for the most part. The shows that I watch, I watch them almost entirely through, you know, Hulu or iTunes or something else like that. So I don't really think about this is a CBS show versus that's a Fox show or an ABC show or whatever. Um, and so, you know, having to buy four separate subscriptions potentially or buy a cable subscription and then authenticate myself to a TV everywhere style app doesn't feel as palatable to me as, you know, having a single Hulu Plus subscription where I know I can get it all in one place. Yeah. Yeah. W- w- yeah. And so it'll be interesting to see the way that all shakes out because I feel the same way you do. I, I, my biggest worry is that the Apple TV will essentially create a system where all of the networks are incentivized to have their own app with their own subscription fee. Right. And then it's going to be financial death by a thousand cuts if you want mm-hmm. to watch all the shows that you're watching before. Because I, I think the truth is very few people are loyal to a network. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, you know, yeah. unless it's like an obscure, not obscure, unless it's like a niche cable network like Food Network mm-hmm. or, you know, HGTV or something where you find yourself watching their shows more than any other. Right. But the vast majority of people, they like the show, not the network. And that's where their loyalty lies. And like most people, I like different shows on different networks. Mm-hmm. And right. That's, and that's always been one of the attractions of the classic pay TV model is you didn't have to choose. Right. You right. just got everything, you know, even though 90 percent of it you never watched. Yeah. At least it was there when he did want to watch it. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. And maybe instead what happens is is all of the different networks produce their own apps, but then Apple figures out like a <clears throat> something equivalent to a cable payment that mm-hmm. gives you full access to all the different Yeah, and I think, you know, uh, there was apps. a... There were reports before Comcast announced its intention to acquire Time Warner Cable, and of course that deal eventually fell through, but there were reports that Apple was working with Time Warner Cable on something. Um, And Time Warner Cable is just kind of trialing a service right now in New York um, where they ship you a Roku box and then you watch your TV through an app on that Roku that they've sent you for free. Uh, instead of having the classic kind of set-top box. And, you know, that means it could, in theory, be delivered to any other box as well if they chose to do it that way. Um, and, you know, 
Apple was kind of working with them supposedly, and so maybe it would have been kind of taking that sort of service national or something else similar to that. But you know, when HBO now launched, and and you could basically pay for it through your Apple ID, you know, I did wonder whether that might be the way that Apple would go, that they just basically sign up as many content providers as possible and allow you to put them all on your Apple bill every month, essentially, um, and pay for them in that way. Um, and I still, you know, if, if the thing falls through that they're reportedly working on where they're doing their own streaming service, I still wonder if that might not be the fallback, where they basically just strike deals with all the content owners to at least allow you to pay for this stuff on a single monthly basis, and then they'll distribute the fees to the content providers as appropriate. Yeah, which really does make Apple just the next Comcast, hopefully with much yeah. better customer service. <laughs> Indeed, yes. Okay, um, there was some other stuff that we said we might talk about, but we're kind of running along on this topic, so I think maybe we'll park it for a future week. Sure. But one of the things that we might talk about again in future is, is kind of the differences between the watch and the TV as far as the apps and where they might go next. So let's, let's remember to pick that up some other time. Um, so our second, question, second topic of the week is um, our question of the week, which this week is about payments. And the question here really is, uh, you know, how does the payments industry work and how is that evolving with the entrance of some of these new players like Square and Apple and Google and Samsung and so on. Um, and so I've done the research for this topic this week. So uh, I'll be answering that big picture question, but as usual, we'll be kind of running through a number of smaller questions. Well, and I'm excited to dig into this topic because of an experience I've just had, which is that when, when so I think we, I've mentioned before in the show that I upgraded from a 5S to a 6S for my phone. My wife did the same. And to this date, I still can't add my debit card to Apple Pay for some reason. Now, my, my credit union supports Apple Pay. My wife has her own debit card with a separate number, but linked to the same checking account. And we were able to add her card to her phone using Apple Pay, her debit card. But for some reason, my debit card doesn't work. When I try to add it, I get... Uh, um, I get a message saying that my issuer doesn't support this card, which is strange because I know that everybody involved supports it. Apple obviously supports it. My my credit union tells me they support it, and clearly Visa on their end should if my credit union does as well. When this problem first happened, I, I, I felt like I was having this blast of the past, you know, remembering when Windows users would have a hardware problem of some kind and they would call up Microsoft and they would say, no, you got to call the, the vendor of your computer. So you'd call Gateway or Dell or HP or whoever. And then they would say, no, 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 that's a problem with the software product that you're using. And you would get sort of bounced around and nobody would take blame. Well, this is essentially what happened with me. I, I called Apple and they said, well, everything works on our end, so call your credit union. So I call them and they say, there's nothing we can do. You should call Apple again. So I call Apple again and, and it got escalated all the way up to some engineer who checked and said, no, there's something going on that, you're, that your credit union is going to have to help you with. No, in fact, what happened was is the lady I talked to was like, you know, you might just need to call Visa. And I was like, what do you mean just call Visa? Like, who do I call at Visa? <laughs> like there's no there's no customer support number for Apple Pay when it comes to Visa. So there's no like right. and I was asking her this question and unfortunately this poor Apple support rep was like, uh, I don't know, just call Visa. <laughs> so I called my credit union back and I luckily I got a guy who has taken responsibility for this and he's been talking to the Apple Pay rep they have with Visa to try to figure out the problem. Um, you know, I, I suppose I might be able to fix this by getting a new debit card number, but that means going into all these places where I have automatic billing set up, oh, I have yeah. to go make all these changes. And this is an it, this is a great topic that I'm going to be fascinated by because I I'm stuck in the middle of all these players, and hmm. none of them yet have taken ownership of the problem and said, yeah, this is it, and this is how we're going to fix it. Right. And, and so why don't you run us down through all the players in, in payments right now and, uh, and give us a sense of kind of where I'm sitting and where all of us are sitting. Right, yeah, okay. That's a good place to start. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, you mentioned a lot of the different players involved there in, in, in your personal experience, but obviously there's the consumer. So there's, you know, you in your example, um, you know, somebody who owns a credit card. Um, so they, you know, in the classic case of a payment, they're going into some merchant or other. It might be into a physical store. It might be online. It might be in an app on their phone. Um, but they, there's then a merchant, somebody who's trying to sell them something um, where they can use their credit card to pay for it. And so the user then uh, enters their credit card information and the traditional model 
um, and then uh, this authentication process happens. So the uh, merchant has a bank that serves them um, that, that's usually called the acquirer in discussions of how this whole uh, value chain works. So the acquiring bank is the bank that uh, is the merchant is a customer of. Um, they may have one or two steps even in between the merchant and that acquirer. So there may be a payment gateway in the case of uh, an online payment or an in-app payment. Uh, there may be a processor at some point along the line as well. And ultimately, um, that bank has to contact the card association uh, or the payment brand, if you like, associated with the card. So that would be a Visa, MasterCard, Discover, American Express, or whatever. Um, so that's the first step. And then you go onto the card issuer. In the case of American Express, they actually fill that role too in some cases. In the case of Visa and MasterCard, that would be the bank. Um, so Bank of America or your local credit union or whatever. Um, and that bank ultimately checks your account to see if either you have sufficient credit, if it's a credit card, or a sufficient balance in your checking account, if it's a debit card. And they then send back a message that either approves or declines the transaction. So, you know, there's, there's you as the consumer, there's the merchant, there's their bank, there's the uh, payment card network, so the Visa, MasterCard, et cetera. Then there's the issuing bank, so the bank that's issued your credit card in the first place. So those are the five major parties that are involved. And as I mentioned, there are some other uh, roles that are starting to emerge in certain circumstances as well. Once it's authenticated, a message gets sent back to the merchant saying, yep, go ahead and sell the goods or no, the card's declined. And then later that day, uh, at the end of the day, typically the merchant bundles up all the payments that have been received that day and sends them off to their processor. And the processor then um, basically collects the money from all these various other parties and, and makes sure that ultimately the merchant gets paid, usually within 24 to 48 hours, and gets the money that they were promised essentially by the issuing bank. And then along the way, that money gets split among all those different parties with each of them taking something of a cut. So... The cut is another interesting question. Uh, hmm. Who's getting paid, and how much, and how are the like? I mean, obviously, all the companies in the middle aren't doing this for free. There, there must be fees involved, and who's making money? How in this process? Right. Yeah. So, um, the biggest single fee is called the interchange fee, and that's the the amount that's charged by Visa and Mastercard for. Uh, processing the payment, you know, using their logo and, and their network and so on. And so um, they uh, collect this fee, which depending on the credit card issuer is anywhere from sort of in the U.S., and, and that's something we should talk about later on actually is how this is different by country, but in the U.S. is um, anywhere between 2 and 4% for most transactions depending on who's, uh, who the uh, payment network is. Um, but they don't keep most of that. The vast majority of that actually gets passed on to the issuing bank. Um, so your Bank of America or your Chase or whatever gets the vast majority of that and the payment network, the, the Visa, MasterCard, Bank Express and so on, they, they keep you know, a small portion of it. Um, there may be a processor along the way. There may be um, you know, the, merchant, uh, the merchant's bank um, will be collecting a little fee as well. Uh, and there may be some others along the way that take a small cut. But the vast majority of the overall fee ends up back with the issuing bank. Uh, that, that issued your credit card in the first place. Um, but yeah, there's lots, you know, as pie gets split up several different ways. It's worth noting that American Express tends to charge more, so it charges about 3.5% on average in the US. Visa MasterCard tend to charge sort of 2.5%. Um, you know, all this varies depending on the transaction, the merchant, the type of purchase that you're making, and so on. But in general, American Express's fees are about one percentage point higher. Um, and that's the reason why, if you have an American Express card, you may well have seen that some merchants don't. Uh, take American Express. It's because essentially it's more expensive to take American Express. And they're, they're a small minority. They're sort of 10% or so of the total payment card market in the US. So uh, Visa and MasterCard cover the vast majority of payments between them and Discover adds another few percent too. Um, but yeah, so most of the money ends up with the issuing bank, but everybody takes their cut along the way. Um, and uh, it's important to note, though, that in Europe and certain other markets, that percentage fee, which, as I mentioned, in the U.S. is sort of 2 to 3.5%, is much, much lower. Um, and so um, in Europe, for example, there was a, you know agreement recently reached that um, there would be a ceiling of 0.3% for credit card payments and 0.2% for debit card payments. Uh, as an interchange fee for Visa and MasterCard. Now, Amex isn't bound by that same agreement because they issue their own cards. Um, and the interchange fee is really about the fee between the issuer and the, and the card network. But um, there's, uh, 
uh, significantly lower rates in general in Europe than there are here in the US. Um, and the same applies to some other markets around the world too, which makes things quite interesting if you're trying to do something sort of consistently on a global basis. Now, those lower rates in Europe, I've heard, and maybe you can confirm this, have to do with the chip and pen system that's been in place for a long time over there, but is pretty new. Or in fact, it's brand new here. And, and from my understanding is that dramatically reduces fraud, which is where a lot of the the cost of the interchange fees goes to to you know, cover fraudulent purchases because if I make a purchase on my Visa card, I'm or rather if somebody else fraudulently makes a purchase on my Visa card, I'm not accountable for that. Right. Uh, is, is, so is that an accurate understanding that that would maybe feed into why there's such a difference in, in the costs there versus here? Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely related, for sure. I mean, the European regulators tend to be more aggressive anyway, and they've been asked to intervene on a number of occasions in, in the payment card market. But part of the reason why they're lower is because there's lower fraud, lower you know liability associated with fraud as well, because um, credit card security has always been much stronger in Europe. And it's one of those things when I moved to the U.S., um, you know, uh, whenever it was 11 years ago now, um, you know, just being able to walk into a store and, and hand over your credit card and, or swipe it and they don't even ask to see the back of the card, you know. So, like, what's the point of my signature being here on the back of the card if you're not even going <laughs> to look at it? Um, you know, there's absolutely no attempt to, to verify identity for most purchases. And there are some states where they require driver's licenses and things, especially for purchases over a certain amount. But the vast majority of states in the U.S. don't require ID for credit card purchases. As a result, it's very easy to steal some his credit card and before they've had a chance to cancel it you can make all kinds of purchases because nobody even checks and in Europe you know they really check your signature and I've had problems in the past in the UK where I grew up you know making purchases because I did my signature somewhat sloppily and didn't look like, like the one on the back of the card um, and obviously with chip and pin purchases um, you know there are two other security layers there's obviously the pin which you know you can't forge in the same way that you can forge a signature um, but also the chip means that uh, the payment's actually authenticated to that specific card, and you can check if that card's still supposed to be live and so on in a way that you can't um, can't do. And, and there's various other things with tokenization and so on that are associated with some of the newer cards that, that didn't exist with the old magnetic stripe and signature card. So with chip and pin coming, and I've, I've heard or read that it is creating new opportunities for new entrants because there's this there's this big change happening, and so there may be opportunities for new people to enter, but... The reason I bring that up is because I'm just curious. This is a decades-old payment network that we have in the United States. And how, how do people enter and how do new players enter, especially I'm thinking about the more prominent ones like Apple with Apple Pay and, and Square with their payments processing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you can either choose to displace one of the existing players in the market or you kind of insert yourself between the existing players in the market. And Square is an example of a processor that's trying to take the place of traditional processes that have provided the point-of-sale systems in stores for decades now. So Square's, you know, trying to displace the existing processes, make it easier for small merchants in particular to take credit card payments. Um, and they've, you know, they've they won Starbucks as a customer. That was actually very costly for them, and they're getting out of their agreement now. But in the process, they've won a large number of other customers, and they've got very rapidly growing revenue off the back of largely giving away these basic card readers and now selling most of the rest of them at cost and then taking a cut on the transactions. So um, Square basically takes a 3% cut on the transactions that it processes and then about 65% of that money then gets passed on to the you know credit card issuers and to the credit card networks. Um, and it keeps you know 35%, so about 1% of the total transaction value for itself, and that then has to cover all its costs and its margin. And it's a tough business, so they're not making money on that yet. They're actually losing money at this point. Uh, and interestingly, you know, because those fees are pretty well set, and this is very competitive, there's not much room for them to expand their margin. Um, and so they're actually investing in a whole range of new products, like uh, issuing loans to companies based on the cash flows they see going through the Square Register. Um, so proactively approaching companies and saying, do you need a loan? And we know you can pay it back because we'll just take a cut of what you process through the Square Register and so on. Um, and getting into some other interesting sort of software as a service businesses as well. And part of the reason for that is the core processing business is actually really tough to make big margins on, especially at small scale. But some of these other businesses are easier to make money on. So, you know, by trying to displace an existing player, they kind of limit their options in terms of how much money they can make. But they've now created some new opportunities because of all the data they collect by virtue of processing all those payments. Um, you know, Apple, on the other hand, has kind of inserted itself in a position in the value chain that didn't exist before. And uh, they're taking advantage of the 
um, introduction of these new cards, which is all tied to something that's usually referred to as the liability shift or the EMV liability shift. And I should probably just explain those terms briefly. In essence, in the past, uh, credit card companies and, and the issuers always carried all the risk when somebody made a fraudulent transaction using a credit card in a store. Um, over the last several years, a, a new system has been put in place where merchants will now use terminals that accept these chip-based cards. And the chip-based cards are much better at authenticating you as a customer and therefore fraud should drop way down. And so if now as a merchant um, you still get fraudulent transactions because you allow people to use a magnetic stripe instead of the chip-based system, um, then you will be held liable for any fraud rather than the card issuers and the bank networks. Um, and so that shift happened at the beginning of October of this year. And as a result of that, there's been lots of upgrades to terminals and so on uh, to accept new forms of payment, including contactless payment and NFC, which is the technology that Apple Pay uses. Another thing that's happened, and this is what's really enabled Apple to come in, and the timing was fantastic here. Uh, the group behind this liability shift is called EMV Co. And that's basically a company made up of all the major processing networks. So Visa, MasterCard, Discover, Amex, um, uh, couple of others in there as well um, that are more popular in other union pay from China, for example, more popular in other markets. And they basically came together to set these standards up. But one of the things that they baked into these standards was something called tokenization, which is where you take a credit card that has a static credit card number. And from that, then on a per transaction basis, you generate a token instead. And that token is what you then used to make the payment. That's what then gets authenticated with the banks. It's a one-time thing. And the great thing about that is that nobody can you know, take your data from one transaction and use it to make another transaction anywhere. It's basically a single-use token. Um, and so it's extremely secure. It can't be stolen in any way. Um, and it's that tokenization technology that Apple Pay takes advantage of. So when you use Apple Pay, it takes your credit card information that's stored on Apple servers, um, but creates a token on the phone that gets used on a one-time basis. Um, and so it's very secure, but it takes advantage of this tokenization technology. So Apple's inserted itself as a token issuer, effectively. And by taking on that new role, they basically said, look, we'll take on this role, we'll work with these banks, and we will take a 15 basis point cut. So in other words, 0.15% cut of the transactions that go through Apple Pay. So that's where they've inserted themselves. You know, Android Pay, Samsung Pay basically work on a very similar model, um, you know, taking advantage of some of the same technology. So it seems that if you're somebody like Square trying to replace existing players, then you have a pretty targeted market to convince, right? I mean, in Square's case, it's merchants that they're trying to bring mm -hmm. around. Yeah. Apple has to convince people up and down the chain, is what it sounds like. Yeah. Right? It has to convince merchants to have terminals that support Apple Pay. It has to convince issuers, right, who will be issuing cars to support Apple Pay. Could could anybody other than companies as big as Apple, like Samsung, Google, could could anybody else and could a small startup do what Apple's doing? It it seems unlikely to me. Yeah, certainly much harder because you do have to coordinate all these different elements. You've got the merchants, you've got the card issuers, you've got the payment networks, you've got consumers, um, and you need sufficient weight in one of those categories to be able to throw that weight around a bit and ex exert pressure on other players. And so, um, you know, Apple's done that very successfully because they, they have this huge base of iPhones that they knew was going to be upgraded to ones that supported NFC and therefore Apple Pay. Um, you know, Google's obviously enormous too. Samsung's very large. Much harder for somebody smaller to do that, um, especially on the card issuer side. I mean, from a merchant perspective, the reality is even merchants that haven't explicitly decided to support Apple Pay kind of do by default if they have the NFC technology in their terminals, unless they've explicitly decided to turn it off. Um, uh, whereas, you know, from, you still need the card issuers to say, okay, yes, you can load our cards on to your new mobile payment system, and, and this is how we'll do that. Um, and so as a smaller player, you'd really struggle to get some of these other players on board. And if you didn't have, you know, significant kind of consumer market share, it would be very hard to exert the kind of influence you need to to get these banks and issuers to take you seriously. And that's the challenge, too. Is it's a really high-scale problem. I mean, I don't know which credit union you bank with. I bank with one. I'm guessing they're both. Is yours a local one here? It is, yeah. Yeah, so mine's also a local one. You know, there are probably a dozen local credit unions just in this state and then you know throughout the US and many others of those there's lots of national banks regional banks you know the sheer scale of this challenge and having to manage all of that would be really tough for a startup to do too 
Um, so there are all kinds of challenges that would come if you were a small company trying to get into this rather than a large company with an existing base of customers. And, and that's all just the U.S. I mean, right. we're talking about this as a U.S. market, but Apple Pay obviously has intentions to go abroad. I mean, it's already hmm. launched in the U.K. Where does Apple Pay go next, and what does it take for them to go to these other markets outside of the U.S.? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, there have been significant challenges in doing that, not least because, as we mentioned earlier, the, the fees that are paid in Europe are far lower. So I mentioned, you know, there's a 0.3% cap on uh, interchange fees for credit card payments, 0.2% cap on debit card payments. Well, Apple's cut in the U.S. is 0.15%. So, you know, that's three quarters of the debit card fee and half the credit card fee. And there's obviously no way they're going to get that kind of cut because margins in Europe are incredibly thin for Visa and MasterCard already. Um, and so that's a t tough challenge for them. And so they've, you know, they've clearly made it work in the UK. Um, they're, they're working very actively to solve those problems in China, which has a very different payment system. And so that's a whole other set of challenges to deal with. You know, they, they work in a very different basis for payments there. Different players, Union Pay is huge in China, for example. Um, interestingly, on the earnings call Apple had last week, they announced uh, five new markets for Apple Pay, but all five of them it's going to go into by partnering exclusively with Amex. Uh, so Amex, as we mentioned earlier, charges higher fees, and it, because it's its own issuer in many markets, it's actually more flexible in terms of how it can work with um, partners like Apple, um, has more margin to work with potentially on some of these transactions. And so it looks like Apple's secured a partnership to work with them exclusively for now. Um, and I was talking to somebody earlier who covers this market very closely as a reporter, and he was saying that you know, he, he, he's heard that, you know, Apple may be trying to, you know, exert influence over uh, Visa and MasterCard by partnering with Amex in this way, kind of exert pressure on them to, to come around as well. But, you know, it's going to be launching in Australia and Canada by the end of this year, and then Spain, Singapore, and Hong Kong next year, and just working through Amex to get that done. And that really simplifies things in some of these other markets. So that'll be an interesting way for them to move forward. And I suspect that they may have to take a more piecemeal approach. They may have to go with a single bank or a single uh, payment network to start off with in some of these markets to try to get some consumer adoption and awareness, and then use that to exert pressure on the others that they need to bring around. Well, this is all really, really interesting. I am a little sad that we still don't know why my debit card isn't being accepted <laughs> for Apple Pay. But that was really that was really fascinating. I hope maybe somebody at Apple or Visa will be listening and will we fix my problem for me. <laughs> that would be good. All right. Um, let's move on to our third topic. And, and we'll, we'll spend a fairly short amount of time on this one just because we're coming up um, to the end of our hour. But Twitter this week announced um, that it was replacing uh, an element of its service, which has been around for quite a long time now, which is favorites. So every tweet has a little star button on it that you can click and, and fave that tweet. Um, it's replacing that with both a different icon and a different name. Uh, so the icon will now be a heart shape rather than a, a star shape, um, and it will now be a like rather than a favorite. And uh, this is just the latest in a series of recent moves from Twitter, which seem designed to uh, capture the attention of new users more effectively, but have at the same time really annoyed and angered in some cases the core uh, really uh, power user base that Twitter has. And this is something I referred to in a post a couple of weeks ago on Beyond Devices called the Two Twitters, in which I talked about this kind of hardcore user base that uses all the features has Twitter has available, and then uh, the rest of the base and the potential customers that Twitter would like to capture, which are obviously much less savvy um, and are going to spend a lot less time trying to get to know Twitter and set it up to, to meet their expectations and so on. So um, this kind of taps into that, that broader trend, and that's kind of what we wanted to talk about here. But Aaron, let's start with you. What was your take on all of this? Well, I think it reflects this, this core growth problem that Twitter has had for a while now, um, which is that there's not a, a lot of room for their business model to grow. Um, and I think one of the solutions that they're seeing to this is by growing more users. And user growth has stalled quite a bit for Twitter. Um, you know, it's not nearly as explosive as it is in different kinds of messaging apps. Um, Instagram, for example, you know, has been taking off Snapchat, other social network apps like those. It, 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 uh, it, it's, it seems to be like Twitter is trying to go after this growth problem when they realize that growth is not going to exist among hardcore users like those you identified. 
and, and so it feels like they're just trying to appeal to a broader population, a younger population. But man, it just feels like window dressing. I mean, it, like there's like this is hardly it, like strikes me as a core change that all of a sudden is going to make people want to use Twitter. Right. Yeah, and that's the challenge. I mean, I think. You know, they launched Moments recently, which is this feature where you get to kind of tap into something that's happening now and see a bunch of relevant tweets, including videos and pictures and so on about that thing. And, you know, it's worked very well during the World Series over the last couple of weeks and, um, you know, a variety of other sort of news events that have been happening. I think that that's much more the direction that Twitter needs to go in and partly because it's kind of... Um, additional to the core Twitter experience. So it doesn't break anything for your traditional Twitter user. You know, some of them might be bugged that they now have this tab they don't use called Moments, but you know, ultimately it doesn't change the core Twitter experience at all for people who don't want to use it. And I think that's a much better fit for the kind of stuff that Twitter needs to be doing. That this kind of fave to like change, as you say, doesn't seem like there's any huge incremental value. I mean, the concept of a like is more familiar, say, from Facebook, which has obviously got a much larger base. And yet, you know, even Facebook is evolving the like because it doesn't really work very well for all situations. You know, there are situations where you want to express condolences or anger about a news article or something like that. You don't want to like that. Um, and, and, you know, favorites are a funny thing because for all that, you know, has a certain explicit connotation of something that you like a lot, um, you know, favorites have a long history on the web. You know, in browsers, there's a way to bookmark sites. You know, in Gmail, there's a way to star particular... Uh, emails for maybe saving for later to, to take action on or whatever um, doesn't necessarily imply, you know, faving something doesn't imply um, that you actually like it. Um, it. It just implies that you want to note something about it. And sometimes it's an acknowledgement that you've read something. Um, sometimes it's, you know, bookmarking essentially. You know, it's even people that talk about hate faving tweets. So, you know, I, I actually didn't like that, but I faved it just to indicate my dislike of it, you know. So the people have used faves in quite a subtle way in a way that hearts won't really work for so this kind of fails to check either box for me it kind of ticks off the hardcore user base without actually providing any real new value for the kinds of users that twitter's trying to attract yeah and i think that's exactly right and and your comment reflects i think the core it's it's funny because twitter is sort of known as a company of constraint right as a sorry as a social network of constraint you only have 140 characters to 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 send your message out to the world. And that constraint was a, was a strong appeal to a lot of people. But ironically, I think Twitter is also constrained as a company by a couple things. One is the 140 characters creates a constraint because their product is pretty limited. And there aren't nearly as broad applications or uses of the product to help it build a bigger business model. I think Moments is a creative idea. I think that's the kind of thinking that they ought to be doing. I think the the core product of 140 characters isn't enough to build a business on. I think this is complicated by the fact that Twitter's funding round or you know, it's Twitter's funding rounds, I should say, and there were 8 of them. This is according to Crunchbase. Um totaled 1.16 billion dollars. And that that's that's a lot of money put in by a lot of investors who need to make their investment back. And I think this has been one of the problems Twitter has had for years now, is that they've been flailing around trying to find a business model to make their investors happy. You know, by comparison, Instagram, Instagram is notorious for having been sort of the ultimate, you know, success story when it comes to a social network, because they were really lean. I mean, there was a time where you could count the you know, you could count the the team members servicing the product and everything on one hand, and their total funding rounds before they were acquired was just for fifty seven million dollars. Wow, and that's two orders of magnitude in difference as right. far as funding goes, and and what that allowed Instagram to do, right, is to not have to freak out about their business model. Right. Um, obviously, it also helps that they got acquired, so now they don't hmm. they really don't have to worry about it. Somebody else is worrying <laughs> about it, but. I mean Facebook specifically, but but the mm. point is is that uh, this ma- you know this massive investment that Twitter has taken on over the years is putting pressure on them to do things that uh, that that their that their core product doesn't simply have room for. I, I just don't think a 140 character tweet is the core product that can return an invest a meaningful investment to all of those investors. 
Yeah, that's an interesting idea. I mean, I think one of the things that Twitter needs to do, and it's kind of been moving in this direction, but it's kind of stayed within the 140 characters, is basically tweet, <laughs> treat, excuse me, <laughs> um, treat the tweet as sort of the carrier of a payload rather than as the entire container. Um, and I think what, what I mean by that is, you know, you can already attach pictures, you can attach videos, you can include hashtags that people can then click on. You can obviously mention other people's usernames and so on. But the problem is all that has to be crammed into the 140 characters right now. Um, and if they start to treat the text of the tweet as, as I say, the carrier or the headline or whatever, um, and then, you know, links, pictures, videos, even, you know, longer excerpts of text or whatever, they treat those as the payload. Um, you know, optional, obviously, um, along with hashtags and other usernames and things like that. Suddenly, it, it frees you up quite a bit from that constraint. I think, you know, I there are frequent stories about, you know, expanding the, the character limit. And I think, you know, 140 characters arbitrary. It was based on the length of a text message minus, you know, some header data. Um, that's where it came from originally. And obviously, most users don't use text messages to deliver tweets anymore. Um, but, you know, it came from somewhere. But the point is, you know, 200 characters would leave you with ultimately many of the same problems. I think that the challenge is that the 140 characters has to encapsulate absolutely everything. And frequently, you know, I want to both have enough text to explain what I'm tweeting about and insert a link and insert a picture. And I'm frequently having to sacrifice one of those things, you know. And being able to take a link and a picture out of the 140 characters would actually go a long way to solving some of those constraints that I deal with. And you see a lot of people tweeting screenshots of text and stuff like that too. Right. You know, that's not searchable in any way. You know, you can't copy and paste that text because it's just an image. You know, if you suddenly made some of those things attachable in a way that you could interact with them better and made them not count against the 140 character limit, suddenly I think you'd be able to remove a lot of the, the artificial constraints that you're talking about. So I'm not sure that problem's not solvable. I think the far bigger problem for Twitter is that they aren't growing their users anymore. And a big part of the problem is that it's too much work to create a Twitter account and to keep it useful and interesting. Yeah. And I think Moments is good because it's like a no-effort way of, of finding something interesting on Twitter. I think they need to better do, do a better job of explaining that product. I think they need to do a better job of tying it into the core Twitter experience. Um, and you know the advertising they've done around it really doesn't do that very well. Um, but I think they're on the right track with things like Moments. And I think there's a lot more stuff that they can do like that. And there was a post I wrote quite a while ago called Twitter's Channel Model is Broken, which basically talked about the whole individual user following um, model being broken. And most users are just not going to put in that effort. I think if they can get beyond that, then I think they can get back to growth again. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny because there's another company we can make a comparison to here, which is Snapchat. And mm. Snapchat, interestingly enough, I think learned lessons from Twitter's stagnance. Because if if you look at the way that Snapchat has really innovated very creatively with stories and other things, mm. they've essentially broadened their product beyond this sort of ephemeral, you know, right. messaging service. Mm. And interestingly enough, Snapchat raised almost exactly the same amount of money. They raised one point one nine billion instead of one point one six billion. And those investors and the managers behind Snapchat, I think, have figured that out. You know, you have to be more like Facebook is what it comes down to. And what's interesting is that these different products, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, they all have different demographics that they serve, but they also have different purposes. And I feel like Twitter really needs to focus on its core demographic, which seems to be centered around the core users. I think if they try to be like Snapchat, they're going to be a less good version of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so this change from favorites to like, I think, doesn't it doesn't really thoughtfully reflect how well they know what they need mm -hmm. to be, and that I think is a reason to be nervous as far yeah. as Twitter's near future is concerned. Yeah, no, it's it's kind of the exact opposite of what it needs to be doing right now in many ways. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Okay, well, we'll wrap up that topic there, um, and we'll finish the episode here with our weekly pick, as usual. Um, I'm going to do that for this week, and hopefully next week we'll get back into our usual routine where we, we kind of alternate the questions of the week and the weekly picks between the two of us. Um, my weekly pick is something I wish I'd recommended last week, actually, and I forgot about uh, in a short while before we recorded the podcast, and I'll recommend it this week instead. But um, it's the movie Bridge of Spies, starring Tom Hanks and directed by Steven Spielberg. I saw this... A few weeks ago, um, there was a weekend when my wife's parents took our kids 
and uh, we were about to have a baby at the time, which which was actually born this past weekend. Um, and so we just wanted to see as many movies as we could. And so uh, we only ended up seeing two in the end of the... Uh, but uh, we saw uh, The Martian, which had huge attention and, and, you know, lots of people were raving about on Twitter. And then we also saw Bridge of Spies, which I'd seen hardly anybody talk about. And I actually enjoyed Bridge of Spies quite a lot more than I enjoyed The Martian. And The Martian was entertaining, it was fun, and the science aspects are, are particularly enjoyable. Um, but I th- found it as a kind of a human story, as an emotional thing to engage with, as something that was kind of uplifting, um, I found, you know, Bridge of Spies much better in that respect. I think the acting's fantastic. The story's really compelling. It's based on a true story um, from the Cold War in which uh, a lawyer from New York uh, who had no experience in international diplomacy gets asked to help uh, secure the release of a hostage from East Berlin, um, you know, in a really sort of trying circumstances. Um, and uh, really, really good movie, really nice, you know, well-told story, some good tension. Um, you know, it seems improbable that this is going to succeed. And uh, and so you're wondering how it's all going to work out. And, uh, you know, and Tom Hanks is always fun to watch. And it's been a few years since I've seen a movie with him that I really enjoyed too. So, so that was great. But yeah, really... In, uh, recommend that movie it's still in the movie theaters in some places so if you can see it there go see it or put it on your wish list for when it comes out on uh, dvd and digital download and congratulations on the new baby he's a cute little kid thank you (laughs) thank you yeah he was born this past saturday so halloween baby for us number four in our family so we're a little sleep deprived at the moment here hopefully it doesn't show through too much here in the podcast but uh, we'll wrap up there for today. Thank you for being with us as always. Um, we're grateful that you could join us. Um, we'll put relevant links on the podcast website at podcast.beyonddevices. And you'll also see links on our Twitter account at BDPcast. Um, so thanks for being with us. And we look forward to being with you again next week.